what it is, RJLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call at radiojustice.org, where something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you while staying safe at home or masked on the bus, train, plane, or social distancing everywhere. Today on Conversation Piece, find out why it is important to be counted by September 30th on the 2020 census with Lene Norwood of My Black Counts. Also hear the ups and downs of Zooming and teaching third graders online with Althea Moses. And later, a pre-COVID flashback to the Pan-African Film Festival with filmmaker Dagmawi Abebe. Welcome to Conversation Peace. Lene Norwood, welcome to Radio Justice. Thank you. Thank you, Angela, for having me. Oh, thank you for being available, especially during a pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And then speaking of the pandemic, so with the coronavirus, are we distracted and forgotten about the census or are we getting it done while everything is shut down? Great question, Angela. Um, traditionally, prior to a pandemic or a COVID outbreak, we already had a huge uh, challenge up ahead of us to ensure an accurate count of black communities. Uh, traditionally, black communities have been significantly undercounted. Specifically in the 2010 census, we were undercounted by 3.7 million people nationwide. And out of that 3.7 million, we undercounted a million black babies. So we missed out on billions of dollars of resources um, and public funding for our communities, our schools, our highways and roads, our healthcare infrastructure, and almost everything that impacts our everyday life as we know it. So prior to COVID, it was already a challenge, which is why we by Black Count to make sure that we are reaching the hardest to count Black individuals in the state of California. Uh, our Governor Gavin Newsom made an unprecedented investment of $187 million to ensure that we were able to reach the hardest account communities in California, and we were a beneficiary of that funding, and were able to develop this campaign, My Black Counts, to really be a call, an anthem of celebration of the diversity of Black communities in California, um, and just acknowledging, you know, geographically there's differences, nationality there's differences, age and of socioeconomic backgrounds and education, we're all very different. Black is not monolithic. Um, so, but what we all are is we are united by the Black experience in America. Um, whether you are Nigerian, whether you are Haitian, whether you were born and raised in California, when you walk down the street, as we're seeing from what just happened with the young brother Ahmad, um, they don't act, stop and say, okay, wait, are you Nigerian? Because I want to know before I kill you unjustifiably. They see a black boy running down the street and they respond to that with hatred. Um, so we are all united by that portion of the experience as well as many other experiences that we share um, in the black diaspora of California. So. We had a challenge um, prior to COVID, and now with shelter-in-place orders, um, you know, a lot of sickness, a lot of families suffering loss, the economic impact of people losing jobs. I mean, we've had millions of people file for unemployment. It is even that much more challenging. Um, people are not focused on the census. That is not something that was top of mind before COVID. And surely COVID is making it even less of a priority. So we have a challenge ahead of us. Um, but it's important that the Black community understands that the census is attached to $115 billion a year for California for programs like unemployment, healthcare, hospitals, the things that we need to continue 
to thrive. So even though it is not a top of mind priority, it should most definitely be. It will shape what our communities look like and how they are resourced for the next 10 years. And so when we're talking about, so we're, we're connecting the dots between completing the U.S. Census and getting money for these different services and programs in our state, in our county, in our city. Because if we don't, there's a possibility that we will run out of money for these services? Great question. So it, it's basically the census determines we have basically, <laughs> how can I explain this? And I'm trying to simplify it and make it into terms that everybody can understand. Um, so there's a big uh, word that's used called apportionment, and that's not really directly connected to the census, that's what happens subsequently in redistricting, which we can talk about in a moment. But basically, each individual who takes the census is estimated to be between $1,000 and $2,000 per year in public investments attached to that person. So if you had a household of five people um, and we took the median of $1,500, we're talking about you know thousands of dollars per household that census funding will direct community resources in your district. So what happens is when we are undercounted, our districts are not resourced and funded appropriately to service everyone who lives in our communities. So when we are undercounted, we are underrepresented and we are unfunded. So when you see things, um, for example, um, the census is directly uh, connected to HUD housing, and funding. You see things like a five-year waiting list to get Section 8. That is a direct impact of census data and the a federal allocation that has been um, mandated for that program that shows up directly here in California. In fact, California um, has been under-resourced as a whole traditionally. We are one of the few states that pays the federal government more taxes than we receive back. So we are actually losing money every year due to census undercount. So it's drastically critical to everyone that we are all counted and represented so that our state, our programs, our resources are accurately funded. So what about the homeless? Are, are they, are they are, I'm, I'm assuming they must be hard to count also. Absolutely. And even the disparities that impact Black communities, they show up even in homeless enumeration or counting. For example, we know that in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, we have a houseless crisis where we see thousands of families displaced and, and without shelter. And 40% of those people are Black people. So, I mean, it is extremely challenging to count the homeless populations, but we need an accurate count of them so that we have the resources to provide services so that they can transition off of the streets and off of skid rows. So, yes, it is extremely hard to count the houseless population. Um, California has one of the largest immigration populations in the country, um, and it is very, very diverse very diverse. There are multiple different nationalities represented um, from throughout the Black diaspora here in California. And there is, uh, the Trump administration tried to impose an immigration question to be included on the 2020 census, and we fought and we won that fight. And the Supreme Court sided with us and agreed that that was not necessary to include that, that the census is not a count of citizens, it's a count of residents. So, but that instilled fear into the immigrant community who is fearing retaliation, deportation, um, enforcement and action from ICE. Um, so prior to even that, there was a challenge with counting black immigrants and brown immigrants in California, and now even been exasperated by the Trump administration uh, attempt to include the immigration question on the 2020 census. So we got our hands full, <laughs> you know? Yes, you between do. Black immigrants, between the houseless communities, between the undercount of children of zero to five, it is especially hard to count black communities accurately. 
and COVID has made it even more challenging. But we have hope. So I want to get to that and talk to how um, people can support and how we can get involved. But we got our hands, our work cut out for us. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, you know, where you were talking about the, the immigration status, I, I just want to make sure that people know that our personal information is not shared from the U.S. Census. Right. So Absolutely. there are no, right, it's, comp- it's kept confidential from federal agencies, FBI, welfare, IRS. So we, we know that certain um, public assistance programs, they always want to know how many people are in your household. And, and you, you know, you may not want to tell them that because if it's going to affect the amount of uh, monies that's coming to your household, but for the U.S. Census, it's a safe place right. for you to let people know so that we can get the appropriate funding for for right. our, our communities. Yes, census data cannot be shared. It is strictly confidential. It is actually prohibited by law. Um, a law called Title 13, which is a federal law. So that applies to all states, all regions, that census um, employees, staff, departments cannot share your information with your landlord, your probation officer, any government agency. Basically, the census is a count. We just want to know how many people live in district X, Y, and Z. And then there is funding and investment attached to that count. It is your data that we are interested in, in terms of uh, a quantitative data, not information on like the names of, I mean, who lives in your house, what services y'all are getting, et cetera, et cetera. It's, that, that is not information that will be used against you. Right. And and it's and how long does it take to, to complete the U.S. Census? I, I didn't do the census for my household. My sister did. I, I live with, with one of my sisters. So okay. she completed it for our household. How long does it take to take to, to, to take the census? Great question. This is actually the first year that the twenty uh, the census is available online. Um, so I have seen people. I mean, I took my census. It took me less than five minutes. I have heard nothing north of ten minutes of taking the census. So in less than ten minutes, it's nine questions. Um, very straightforward. What's your name? What's your telephone number? What's your address? How many people live with you? What's your ethnicity? Are there any other additional people you need to count in your home? What's your telephone number? And what's your race? I mean, that's it. It takes less than 10 minutes. It's something you can do online. You can even do it online on a mobile device. It doesn't have to be a desktop computer. It's mobile friendly. And it's something that it's, it's the best five minutes that you could spend in the day and time we're in right now. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, because when, when things are sure, <laughs> we have plenty of, of time. Uh, now, what if you don't have internet access and you don't have a, a laptop or you maybe don't even have, have a smartphone? How, how can you take the census? You can take the census by phone. There is a phone line that is actually available in 12 different languages, if I'm correct. Wow. Um, and for those that are hearing impaired, there's um, assistance for those who are hearing impaired as well. But you can take your census on the phone and a census bureau representative will support you with that. Also, if you have not responded to your census, you should have received a paper form in the mail by now. Um, So if you received your census by mail at your home, go ahead and fill that out. The prepaid postage envelope is already taken care of. Fill that out, drop it in the mail and return it. So if you are listening right now and you haven't taken your census, I need you to go to myblackcounts.org right now. And as you're listening to this interview, take your census. I guarantee you'll be done before we finish talking. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's, that's, that's a, good, a good challenge and a good um, play along with us and, and, yes. do, and do your, your census while you're listening to Conversation Peace on Radio Justice Los Angeles with Lene Norwood, creator of My Black Counts. So why did you create My Black Counts? I, I mean, I think we can figure out why, but how <laughs> is My Black Counts helping increase the participation in the U.S. census? What, what are you guys doing? Well, great question. I mean, really, when we were developing the idea of what My Black Counts could be, we wanted to make sure that it was inclusive of all the diversity of Black community. In addition to that, we didn't want it to be something that was like, 
you know, dark or depressing to talk about all the things that haven't happened for us. We wanted to spread hope and, and, and spread inspiration and show the Black community the possibilities, the possibilities of what can happen for us when we unite with action. So My Black Counts was intended to be an anthem, right? This is the anthem that in, unites us all. We honor and celebrate the unique individuality and humanity of all Black people. So regardless of what walk of life you come from, whether it's your immigrant or you were native born here in America, if you are cisgender, non-binary, non-conforming, transgender, um, we want you to be represented in our, in our community. Um, children, millenniums, baby boomers, elders, all faiths, Christian, Muslim, atheists, all backgrounds, rich, poor, <laughs> you name it. Uh, the census impacts us all, for, and, and not only for the next 10 years, but for generations. What happens now is going to set us on a trajectory that will not be able to be course corrected in the next census. Um, so it's mindful that people understand the generational impact of this census of what it's going to have. It stretches even beyond 10 years. But think about where your children are going to be in 10 years, right? Most of our children, if we have little ones, will be in high school by then. So it's very important that we make the time right now to participate in the census so we set them up for success um, as they're developing into uh, teenagers and adults. But Outside of that, too, other things that we're doing um, to make sure that we reach the Black community prior to COVID, we hosted a plethora of community events. We actually are a coalition of 35 Black-led and Black-serving organizations throughout the state of California um, and a part of the California Black Census and Redistricting Hub. Our, or our coalition is at the forefront of racial justice and social justice issues. And, uh, and they are also direct service providers to Black communities already entrenched, embedded into the communities that we reach out to. So they are the trusted messengers. They are the people on the front line of all the issues that impact our communities every day, even beyond census. Um, so I, I love our coalition and the work that we've been doing prior to COVID. We were knocking doors by tens of thousands of doors, uh, phone banking, holding community events all throughout the state. Um, since the COVID pandemic, we've had to pivot and focus our efforts to be more on virtual phone banking to comply and adhere to the shelter uh, so, uh, physical distance orders that we receive from our governor. So we're engaging now in virtual phone banking, where it's something that, you know, all of our coalition team leads have recruited teams in their organization, and we're calling thousands of people every single day telling them, hey, the census is live, take your census. In addition to that, me and my team, we oversee our digital um, strategy where we are we have pushed out of ads, hundreds of ads um, in every type of online platform you can think of to make sure that people know about My Black Counts, know about the census, and know that it's live and it's something that's important. So through social media, through various online websites, through phone banking, and then now um, we're rolling into, you know, helping to empower other community members to join us and help us with this work. And I'll talk about that because I have a, a call to action for everyone who's listening. But we really have to get creative now because the traditional methods are not available to us. But we know that word of mouth has always been the vehicle of information in the Black community. Nothing has changed in 2020 with that. That is still the best way to make sure that we get the word. So it's really up to everybody who's listening. It's up to all of us to make sure that we're all counted. Who's counted in the house? Great question. And that's a tricky one, right? Because people are like, where do I get counted at? So let me be clear. First of all, the census is a count of everyone living in your home. It's blood relation, relative, kinfolk. That is not exclusive to the census. So if you have a friend, a roommate, um, you know, a foster child, anybody who is living in your home, they should be counted. And where should they be counted is where they live most of the time. So when you are taking your census, 
count everyone who at that moment that you're taking your census who lives with you most of the time so if you had to think about a a ratio 50 percent plus one right um for those folks who have already taken the census they were instructed to take it whoever was living in your home as of april 1st my situation so my sister already did the census but my nephew and his wife they live with us most of the time how is there a way to correct it or should they just go on and do their own census uh, great question yes you can actually go back on you can take the census again and just count those individuals and the census bureau will uh, pin those to your um, household count um, in the back end so yes oh but wow you need to update the census if there were people that you didn't count because you're hearing new information now Go back on your census, plug in your address, and count those people as well. Right, or the, or, or a baby was born <laughs> after you've right. taken it, right? So the guidance on newborns is as of April 1st. So okay. if you had a baby that was born on or before April 1st, then you should have counted them on the 2020 census. If they have been born um, between now and April 1st, I would recommend, I mean, we don't have official guidance from the Census Bureau on this yet. I would recommend to count them, <laughs> but we don't have official guidance on that yet. Since right. Cause we want, we don't want to be one million black babies short this year for, for these, for, for this census. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. One million babies not counted. Ooh, we. And um, if you think about that, that's $15,000 times, that's $15 million, no, $15 billion that was under resource to children. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. That, is, that is crazy. <laughs> Thank you for putting a number on, on that. My Black Counts, are you just focused on California or are you guys nationwide? We are explicitly focused on California, but we welcome anyone from around the country. If, I mean, we have supporters in Atlanta, in Connecticut. I mean, we've had so much outpouring support outside of the state. It kind of caught us off guard. We weren't planning for that or aiming for that, but the content and the information was so relevant, timely, and helpful that we've seen other states modeling and sharing our content and information. So our primary focus is California, but hey, the more the merrier because we have Black folks throughout the whole United States and we definitely want to be a resource and a support for anybody in, in, in America. So, hey. Right, right. <laughs> one thing we didn't touch on that, mm -hmm. that I do want to just briefly um, touch on it, that the census impacts, the census also impacts Black political power. People do not realize that our congressional, the number of congressional members that we get in our state is also determined by the census. In addition to that, how many electoral college votes we get in presidential elections, wink, wink, we have one coming up in November, is also determined by census counts. So not only does the census impact our public funding and resources, it also impacts our political representation and voice. And we know that we, there have been some key legislators that have been African-American from California that have gone to bat and held this administration to the fire um, for us. We need to make sure that we protect their seats and their ability to advocate for us by making sure that we don't lose any representation politically. Yeah, we cannot afford to lose any representation. That's for sure. So mm -hmm. everybody get out and, and fill out your census. You said you had a call to action for us. Well, what is your call yes. to action and what's next after the census? So my call to action, if you are listening right now and anything in here appealed to you or motivated you to help join us, and spread the word. I want you to take out your phone right now, take out your cell phone if you can, and I want you to text the word COUNT, C-O-U-N-T. So open up a new text message, and the telephone number you are gonna be texting is 97779, and you are gonna text that number the word COUNT. 
and then you will be subscribed and you will receive periodic, we do not spam, we will not blow your phone up, I promise, but you will receive periodic messages and information from My Black Count and ways that you can get involved to help us spread the word and you're joining the movement. Um, also, if you're not a text person, that's not really a thing, visit myblackcount.org and sign up on the form that's in our website and we will be in touch with you on ways that you can join us and support us in this movement to make sure that our Black communities throughout California are accurately counted. So once again, text the word COUNT to 9779 or visit myblackcount.org. Wonderful, wonderful. What's next after the census? Are you guys involved with the with getting people to register to vote and, and for the election or, or what's going on? Well, there's been such an overwhelmingly positive response to our campaign. We are still navigating through that. So one thing that is next that I can officially announce is redistricting, which is impacted by the census. And that is federal apportionment and line drawing and map drawing. So if you guys have ever heard of the word gerrymandering, our undercount in the census leads to the ability for people with an agenda that is anti-communities of color to gerrymander our communities and dilute our political voice and vote. So I, I know you guys have all like, why is that piece of the district not in this voting block? Or, or why, why is that my Congress member, even though I, they don't even live close to me? That is a decision, those are decisions that are made through the redistricting process. And so once we are done with the census, we will be focused on redistricting to make sure that we have equitable maps and districts in the state of California that represent the interests of the Black community. So excited about that work. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. And again, our coalition, they will definitely be on the front lines of the November election. Some of them are already starting to make that pivot um, and preparing for what comes after census. So we're excited to make sure that we're using our platform to continue to empower and engage the Black community. Great, great, great. Well, you guys, you guys heard the call to action. Text on your phones, 97779, the word count. And, and do what you can to support this movement so that we are not undercounted, underfunded, and that we still have our political power and, and are properly represented um, in the federal government. So make sure you visit myblackcounts.org, myblackcounts.org for more information. And hopefully by now, you guys already finished your census if you were following us at the top yes. of the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lene Norwood, thank you so much for, for joining me today and, and letting us know the importance of this U.S. census. And thank you so much, Angelo, for having me. And thank you for your your show, I mean, it's so needed in our community. We have to continue to make sure that we are the messengers to our people and making sure that they're getting the accurate information that they need. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And you guys, make sure you follow her show and listen in on the podcast. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Here is your Radio Justice Community Calendar. Join Stop LAPD Spying Coalition Community Meeting over Zoom for COVID webinar series, part 21, Tuesday, August 11th at 6 p.m. Visit stoplapdspying.org for Facebook or Zoom details. NAMI California's Town Hall with Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission, who evaluates Proposition 63, the Mental Health Services Act, and lead statewide efforts for criminal justice and suicide prevention. Tuesday, August 11th, 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Go to namica.org forward slash town hall for more information or to see past town hall meetings. Join Black Lives Matter Los Angeles for Jackie Lacey Must Go weekly protest every Wednesday, 3 p.m. at 211 West Temple Street, downtown Los Angeles. Please wear your mask. And for information, check out Black Lives Matter Los Angeles Facebook page. 
LA Can Culture Hour with Kayo and Natasha every Thursday, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Zoom and Facebook Live. For more information, go to Los Angeles Community Action Network Facebook page. MLK Community Healing and Trauma Prevention Center presents the second virtual webinar series on violence, racism, and trauma, featuring Dr. Denise Shervington of Charles Drew University, Thursday, August 13th, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. For details, call 323-568-8186. Learn the legacy of Black August, its revolutionary history of the tradition and its demand of present and future generations. Featuring Tande Sizwe, Chimaranga, and others on Facebook, Thursday, August 13th, 4 p.m. Pacific time. For more information, check out Black August Los Angeles Facebook. Join National Alliance of Mental Illness for Family Support Group the second and fourth Thursdays of the month. NAMI family support groups are free and confidential for families helping other families who live with mental health challenges. To register for this Thursday, August 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom or future sessions in English or Spanish, go to namiurbanla.org. Black Lives Matter Los Angeles virtual town hall on Instagram at BLM Los Angeles. Thursday, August 13th at 7 p.m. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Casa Tai Chi Shuan sessions on Zoom, Tuesdays and Thursdays. For more information, call 213-447-7700. There will be a free community food giveaway Saturday, August 15th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Covenant Blessing Fellowship. 1215 East Rubido Street in Wilmington. It's first come, first serve until supplies run out. Visit covenantblessing.org for more info. Black August Los Angeles presents a panel discussion on the history and future of Black and Brown solidarity, Sunday, August 16th at 3 p.m. on Facebook Live and YouTube. Visit Black August Los Angeles calendar on Facebook for details. If you want your event to be placed on the Radio Justice Community calendar, then email calendar at radiojustice.org. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Piece. Next, teaching during the pandemic with elementary school teacher Althea Moses. Althea Moses, welcome to Radio Justice. Thank you, Angela. How was teaching on Zoom? Because uh, I, I don't, I don't have any kids. I don't, I don't have. I don't. I don't. I don't have. I don't have any children. I'm not a teacher. Um, I'm. You know. I'm. I'm not. Not. Um, so I don't know what. I only know what Zoom looks like for me doing these show interviews. We have technical difficulties just about every day. And the Wi-Fi for the students is not always so strong. Mine is also not also so strong. So how many children do you have in your class? 24 third graders. 24, 24 third, graders. third graders. Yes, yes. And they're third graders um, from Watts area. Mm -hmm. And so it's a diverse group. It's mostly Hispanic kids, uh, uh, some Blacks. Um, one refugee from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and uh, don't believe I have any whites. But um, most of them come to learn, and the experience uh, on Zoom was um, new to me, obviously. Teaching um, elementary school kids on Zoom was new to me. It was, it was very difficult because I'm a kinesthetic teacher. I'm always moving and, and uh, being engaged with them. And it was hard to do that just sitting down in a chair. Okay. And that's what I ended up having to do um, because um, the laptop that the school gave me, um, Zoom wasn't uploading on that laptop. And so I had to resort to my cell phone in the past two weeks. And I have oh. my MacBook Pro that I was using in the beginning where I was able to put up a white, I have a board 
mm-hmm. um, a dry erase board that I had in the background that I was writing things on. But when yes. Zoom wouldn't upload on that laptop either, I had to resort to the cell phone. The Wi-Fi was freezing, you know, like you just experienced a moment ago. It was yes. a lot of technical issues. The kids not paying attention. They're, they're, they're at home and so they're chilling, you know. Like this is still a class, you know. So I had to um, tell them about my rules, my Zoom class rules. Okay. Another thing, uh, Angela, was um, parents. The kids don't have a quiet space at home because, like I mentioned, these kids are from Watts, and so a lot of them are in the projects. Mm-hmm. They live in the projects, and there's a lot of family members at home. So it's okay. loud. The mariachi yes. music was playing loudly one day in my class, mm-hmm. and um, I'm. Um, parents are, um, maybe it's not parents, but whoever's in the house, they're having conversations and some of them are using profanity, mm-hmm. not even thinking about the child being in a class and there are right. other children yeah. there in class. And so I've had to ask my, my um, administration, how do I address this? Yes. And so I was told to address it, simply say parents are responsible for providing their children with a quiet space. And I added to that, um, that um, the kids always tell them, if you hear your parents in the background having a conversation, just press, just mute your microphone. Okay. Uh It's as simple as that. Just mute your microphone, boys and girls. You don't have to ask. And Mm -hmm. so that is started getting better when they realize that that background conversation, they just simply mute while I'm teaching and they unmute when they need to talk to me or answer me. Another thing I told them to do was um, if there's a lot of activity, because sometimes um, the, the baby um, siblings walk by or they're making noise or parents are walking by and they're not even dressed, you know, they're at home. Right. People aren't dressed up, you know. Right. <laughs> and they're yeah. walking by and you see things I don't think that other kids should be seeing. And so simply press your video, turn your video off and just listen to me. Okay. So it it, yes. it was an experience of a lifetime to teach on Zoom. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that but sounds it, very challenging. Now, so it was so twenty four kids who mm-hmm. are in the Watts, Los Angeles area. And for those of you guys who are not familiar with with the Watts area, you probably think that some people probably know about Watts since nineteen sixty five Watts uh. riots, but but the Watts um, area does have, I believe, three public housing um, areas, um, L.A. Jordan, um, Mm -hmm. Imperial Gardens, and Imperial Courts. Yes, and a lot of kids come from there. A lot of kids come from there. Did they have internet? Did all the kids have internet? Um, I shouldn't say yes right away. They ended up having um, free internet because of the COVID um, pandemic. Uh, I believe AT&T provided hotspots mobile okay. hotspots for everybody who didn't have it because we wanted the district wanted all kids to ha- have access to learning remotely right yeah and so um we did a survey i the teachers were required to call all the parents and, and ask them if they had wi-fi and most of them did have wi-fi but those mm-hmm. who didn't were, were offered uh, we gave them an 800 number to call at&t and i believe verizon to get free wi-fi okay yeah Okay. And we and, also had them pick up their Chromebooks. Okay. We used Chromebooks throughout the year and um, the district decided that they should take the Chromebooks home. And that's how we were able to teach online until yesterday. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. the, so the, the school had already previously issued Chromebooks prior to the quarantine. Yes, in class. In class. We had, every class had a cart of Chromebooks. Individual, every kid had a Chromebook. Um, not every kid, I should say, but I believe it was third through fifth grade. The, the, the grades that um, take, take the national state test, the mm-hmm. SVAC, mm-hmm. they had Chromebooks. And so those kids were allowed to uh, have their parents come pick up their Chromebooks. Okay. And so that's how, how I was able to teach them in, online. After, right after spring break. Right I started after spring teaching. break. Until yesterday. Well, until yes. yesterday. School's out yeah, for the summer. Reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always play with them and say, I'm so sad. I'm gonna be sad. It's like, Miss Gil Harry, you're not sad. I'm so sad. <laughs> right, right. But they're happy to be rid of me too, because I give homework every day. That's right. That, that's so, right. So it's, it's even. How did, 
how do you collect homework? How do you how you grade homework and how do you give exams? Ah, that's a good question. Zoom? Oh, girl, we have to take five um, professional development online classes to figure out how to teach online. And one of those classes that took um, recommended that we upload, have the parents um, take pictures of the work and upload it. And so I, I chose a platform. There's an app called ClassTag and uh, ClassTag.com. And um, that's how I communicate, send all my information, my correspondence to the parents, the Zoom link and everything else. They would upload it to the message. And that's how I was able to see their work and okay. give them credit. And, and the parents that's were, a great were, question. Were, were the parents cooperative? I would say out of the 24 kids, unfortunately, only about five turned in homework from, from the time we were on, online doing remote learning. Okay. Unfortunate, Angela. Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you make up for that? Is there any makeup for that? Well, the, the district is offering summer school for all students. Usually they don't offer it to all students, but this time they're offering it to all students, online summer school. Okay. For, and for elementary district, school too. Uh, well, for us, I don't know about um, for um, middle school or um, high school, okay. but definitely uh -huh. for middle school, all the students were offered um, summer school online. Okay. They were also mailed... Um, workbooks for reading and mathematics to work throughout the summer. Okay. Is that mandatory or voluntary? No, the, the district mailed them workbooks. Oh, okay. We didn't so, even, the teachers didn't even know about it when we were on Zoom. The, the kids said, oh, look, Miss Gillary, we got these in the mail. I'm uh -huh. from where? This is from the district. They mailed them workbooks, a math and a reading workbook to continue to work throughout the summer. Okay. Without a teacher? Yes. Yes. Because we're on vacation. Right, right, For, right. Um, believe ten weeks. Right. So, so really, just so, so how how are they going to keep track of that? I know I got a lot of questions. <laughs> keep track of what? Uh, how are they going to keep track of the students who who do those workbooks during the summer? They can't because they're on their summer break. They're on their summer break. Okay, so, so I think it's, it's it was a thoughtful thing that the district did that. Personally, they mm -hmm. mail them workbooks. Just um, you remember workbooks to when you were in high school, in elementary school. Mm -hmm. One is reading and one is mathematics, yeah. um, comprehension, etc. They send them a math and a reading one. So they just sent it to them. They know okay. they need it because it's three months, Angela, that they've been out of school, the physical classroom. Right. Yeah. Three yeah. months. Right, so that that's some good supplemental work. Yes, yes, for them. So we most definitely got to keep our 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 students and our schools in prayers, especially um, students who are coming from households who may not know how to support them. That's correct. Yeah, that's a very good point. And yeah. So I I feel based on my teaching on Zoom that um, it was only about 10 kids who were showing up every day to my Zoom classes. And I sent the message to all 24 parents. Mm -hmm. And so of those 10 kids who were showing up to Zoom classes, only about half were paying attention. And the ones that were paying attention when I was teaching, uh, those are the ones that usually pay attention in class anyway. They come to learn. Right. So, I've had to, there, there um, was one particular student I had to take out of Zoom class because he would be making crazy faces and mm -hmm. uh, making sounds, just like he does in class. Right. So I've had to remove him and put him in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. So maybe right. I should write a book about this. Yeah, I think This so. experience was, it was, um, it was an experience. Yeah, very challenging. Class. Very it was very challenging. challenging. Yeah. It was successful, I feel, because I was able to reach some kids who were there to learn. Yes. But it's unfortunate that um, out of 24, a lot of them have, they're probably gone, they're back. They're gone 
they didn't get what they really need, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to be successful in the next grade level. Right. And those and those, those same students, if you while they were in class before before the shutdown, were they the same type of student or did they get worse? I believe it will get worse, Angela, if they haven't been doing the work that I assigned. Okay. Because I continued where I left off Mm -hmm. and I was almost done anyway, because I'm the kind of teacher who started teaching the first week of school. I don't wait till fourth week. I get right Mm -hmm. into the curriculum and I start to teach every single day, Uh test them on Fridays, retest, reteach. And so we were almost done anyway by March Mm -hmm. 13th Mm -hmm. when we left. So I just picked up where I left off after spring break. And, and so those kids who paid attention, who did the homework, because you know, homework is practicing what you learn in class. Right. I feel those kids are going to be okay in fourth grade, but it's only about five of them out of 24. Based on, that's my opinion. Right. Yeah. My professional, based on my professional observance. Yes. With, with, with them since um, uh, we started the remote learning or distance learning. Right. So uh, some kids are going to be left behind if they don't do something, if the parents don't get do something this mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be difficult, I feel, also for teachers to um, just come in and teach the curriculum in August because right. these kids need to catch up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them will need to catch up. What's going to happen in August? Do you guys know um, yet? Um, I, no. The superintendent noted that we school is still scheduled to open August 18th, and that's LAUSD. It's still scheduled to open August 18th as planned, but it's um, not definite. They're waiting on, on the data from um, the CDC. I think okay. that's what they're going to wait on. Okay. So they, they're working on a plan. They've sent us information by email on, through a survey on how classes will be Mm-hmm. And whether it's going to be physical, like like we used to be there five days a week, or it's going to be one day on, one day off, there there's we don't know exactly how it's going to look because it's all based on the data whether or not we will be back in the physical classroom August 18th. Althea, thank you, my friend, my guest, Althea Moses. Let's be very clear, I ain't here to drink beer, smoke weed, shoot the breeze and break bread with you I'm only here to resurrect the living dead with you Thought it was some kind of a game, I'm not playing with you I got the Moorish warlords with Moroccan sharp swords Ethiopians with white face camouflage Already disciplined and ready for that sabotage You listen to Minaj? Word? You should kill yourself and everybody that you came with Arrangements out of jurisdiction, no arraignment My name gets mentioned through the ethers, through high frequency speakers Certified, 45, get in line Make this revolution rap your favorite pastime Make listening to Kuhn Tune your very last time Last time he was CEO and now he's gangstified Pushing keys, catching bodies, man, somebody lied I'd rather listen to that guy noise Levitate with fly boys, organize an army, bang dead prayers Understand I'm not a missionary, just the devil's adversary Extraordinary, compliment the feds And most listening are subject to conditioning They need a hook, something snappy just to pull them in I truly sympathize, I hope this pretty singing satisfies Now should we get back to business then? Separating gods from the nigger men Separating chicken heads from the heroines They tell me constantly that I should change my content You're just too conscious, maybe you should narrow in Rhyme more about that street life heroine Make it amplify, glorify the hell you're in But where the hell you been? Clearly you don't know me then Spit flame, eat the knowledge Now here's a little treat, a pre-COVID, pre-shutdown flashback experience to being out and about amongst the people earlier this year during Black History Month. I'm Angela Birdsong with Conversation Piece, and I am at the 20th Annual Pan-African Film Festival and Arts Festival, and I just came out of the Black History Short Doc Film Series, and I'm able to talk to one of the writers, uh, and his name is Dagmawi our baby, and he wrote the film The Ball Method. Oh my goodness, you guys, you're gonna have to find The Ball Method. It's talking about, again, a hidden, a hidden figure um, within our um, American culture, a black woman, 
let me let you tell me about the film. Introduce yourself and tell us about this film and how did you come across this idea? Hi, my, my name is Dagmar Baba. I'm the writer and director of The Ball Method. Um, I came across Alice Ball's story when I was reading a book on black entrepreneurs in the West in the 1800s. There was a paragraph, there was a chapter about her grandfather who went around taking photographs of African American daily lives. And there was a small sentence that said his granddaughter found the treatment for leprosy. And since I come from a physics background, I thought that was very interesting. And I was looking to make my thesis film at USC. So I ended up doing more research about her and I started finding out that she is. Uh, on top of being finding the treatment for leprosy, she was the first woman to graduate with a master's degree at, from the College of Hawaii and also to become an instructor there. So I just thought her story was really fascinating. Fascinating indeed. And you just became intrigued with her story from one scientist to another. But did you always, before you became a scientist, before you went to um, UVA, did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker? Um, yes, I would always be making films since middle school and submitting to little festivals. Um, and I, along the way, film has been the one thing that's been consistent in my life. Yeah, even doing physics, I, was, I did film studies minor. I was vice president of the Filmmaker Society at UVA. So I kept, and then once I got to college, I realized I could do it professionally. So I applied to USC film school, and this is how I ended up here. What was the hardest part in making this film? The hardest part was trying to find Alice Ball's personality because there was no surviving journal or diary from her and only one sentence from her science club high school that said, I work, I work, and still it seems that I have nothing done. So I, that was the, really the challenging part is to make her feel like a real person and not a stereotypical um, like science figure we see in, tel in uh, movies and television. So how did you develop her personality if there wasn't anything indicating who she was that you based it on somebody that you know? Um, I based it from the sentence and then I really, since I really connected with her and how I felt during when I was studying physics at UVA, I tried to imagine how I would feel in the, every situation that I've read about, the, the historical, uh, the historical articulations. Um, so I, that was really where I based her personality and really I tried to make the film even though that time there was a lot, a lot of racism um, and it was, you know, it was a hard time for African Americans, I really tried to focus all on the science and what she was trying to accomplish. Now you have some of the other um, people here. Oh, did they? Did they leave? <laughs> oh no. Okay. So you here? Who was here with you? Um, so the cinematographer Bash Ashkar and the producer Mehmet Gengoren, who both started school with me four years ago and finished with me last year, and we always work on projects together. Okay. So was this was this a school project or a private project? Um, this was a school project in association with. Uh, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, who funds uh, movies that show science in, in a realistic way, not stereotypical. Um, so they do, they fund movies like Hidden Figures and First Man. Um, so yeah, it was, it was my last uh, USC project. Okay, well c congratulations <laughs> on it. So what's next with this film? Um, with this film right now, we are submitting to festivals and uh, we're going to be screening at the National Hansen's Disease Museum next year as part of their 20th Century Medicine uh, exhibit. And we're, I'm hoping that even more people get to see it. And we were also on NPR Science Friday two weeks ago, and uh, a lot more people are able to hear about Alice's story. Right. Now, I overheard you, because there, there was a Q&A mm -hmm. after, after the, the film showing today, that this was your first showing of the film, and then it's going to show again in Hawaii. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Yes. Um, I, there's a day now dedicated for Alice Ball on February 29th. Uh, so sometimes I celebrate it on February 28th. And uh, so they will have a screening for the movie and also uh, a gathering with uh, students and faculty and people that I did research with for this film uh, to remember Alice and celebrate her life. Now, if we were to Google Alice Ball, would we be able to find information about her? Yes, yeah. She, there's a Wikipedia page, and uh, it was, there's been a other... She has also been memorialized in the London School of Hygiene this year in September uh, as one of the three uh, women that contributed to health. 
So uh, there's a lot more information coming out about coming out about Alice Ball right now. And how long did it take before I don't know the science community at large know knew about her? Um, the historians uh, started doing research in the 191970, but it, she wasn't given uh, her credit until t until the year 2000, and where they put a plaque uh, under the lone Chalmugra tree in, on the campus of the University of Hawaii. Okay, and I think this is my last question. <laughs> now, so what is next for you as a filmmaker? Um, right now, I'm currently uh, writing uh, my next my next feature film um, and now right that will focus more on immigrants coming from Ethiopia living in America and the effect divorce has on from the perspective of the son the mother and the father how can we find this film if, if somebody wants it to be um, played at their school or organization how, how do we how do we find the film how do we find you um, I have a website. It's www.dagabebe.com, uh, D-A-G-A-B-E-B-E.com, -E where it has my contact, um, and uh, I can be re we can be reached out, and we will happily show the film because our goal is really to show people that um, that it's really to show the people that to motivate at least to motivate young African Americans uh, that want to do science. Uh, Right, exactly. Oh, and I know it's a short. How long is the film? The film is 19 minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it it sure. didn't seem like it was nice. I mean, it, it felt yeah. so full, mm -hmm. the, the information that, that you were giving us mm -hmm. about her life and that someone stole her scientific yeah. method. Um, the, yeah. the the ball method and and deemed it um, the dean method yeah. himself. Did, was that ever corrected? Where is that person mm -hmm. now? You know, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sure he's dead, but but <laughs> yeah. but but where has that that part of the dean method has it been changed in the books, etc.? Um, the dean. So once the uh, once the historians found out the truth of who found the credit, because there is proof in 1922, Harry Holman wrote. Um, uh, saying that this should be called the Alice Ball method, but really people kept attributing it to the dean, and he never cited her, and it, was, it went that way. Um, but now uh, people know who uh, people know who did the results, who came up with it, and um, I forget. I think the question. <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, okay. No, yeah. it has been it has been corrected. It is a little okay. bit controversial okay. at the University of Hawaii, yes. um, but it was time, and especially the past year, her. New, uh, stories about her has been coming out more, and students at the university ha have been fighting to get her noticed. And I know they're trying to change the chemistry hall's name from Dean Hall to Alice Ball Hall. So right, let's see how that goes. <laughs> Heavy stuff. Once again, congratulations. And this is Angela Bird, so I'm a conversation piece. I'm coming straight from the Baldwin Hills Cinemark Theater for the Pan African Film Festival, the 28th annual. information about submitting a film to the 2021 Pan-African Film Festival, go to paff.org. Catch Dagmawi Abibi's short film, The Ball Method, at the 11th Annual Bronze Lens Film Festival, The Virtual Experience, on August 16th. Thank you to Lene Norwood of My Black Counts. Remember the new deadline for completing the census is September 30th. Go to myblackcounts.org to take the census. Thank you, Althea Moses, school teacher and author of Irresistibly Fit. Find her book at altheam.com. Thank you to Leslie Rafford, Adam Rice, Nicole Johnson, Michael Washington of M. So for the opening and closing theme song. And always you, our RGLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice Facebook. Follow us. Give us some love. Give us some likes as you listen to us worldwide anytime on RadioJustice.org. I'm Angela Birdsong. Once again, thank you for allowing me to share this experience of conversation piece on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love. <laughs>